From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, natural language processing and ophthalmology. This would only be something that a clinician would use, just like interpreting an EKG would interpret in the context of the care of the clinical patient. First this. I know many of the audience of a scene from here also watch my live conference interviews on ewreplay.org. These brief video programs highlight the most important news from major ophthalmology meetings and number in the hundreds every year. But if you haven't watched ewreplay.org recently, you've got to check it out. iWorld Replay has really upped its game with super video production and fantastic content. ewreplay.org. We've just renovated and we'd love to have you over. There used to be a popular expression to describe something old-fashioned as being so last week. The idiom resonated because of the rapid pace of change of the modern world. Of course, as ophthalmologists, we know how rapidly our field can change. But for those of us engaged in artificial intelligence research, the amount of progress in the last 12 months is absolutely astounding. Some of these remarkable tools are finding clinical utility and Maria Woodward, my guest today, has published a demonstration of one of these. I'll let her explain. We're going to be talking about an implementation of NLP in ophthalmology. Before we get to the meat of the study, let me ask you, Maria, what is NLP? Well, NLP in this context stands for natural language processing, which for an ophthalmology application, as you can imagine, is a really unfortunate acronym because any ophthalmologist, when they hear NLP, usually thinks of no light perception. So, but for this for this purpose of this paper, it's for, it stands for natural language processing. And what does that mean? I mean, I know what what, what each of those words mean in different contexts. Sure. So natural language processing is to extract textual data um, and interpret its meaning or to be able to codify its meaning and put it into buckets. And so it's it's a way of um, coding and classifying words and assigning a meaning to them that's determined by the person using the algorithm. Since electronic medical records, which are the, the, the sort of fodder for the um, for the NLP from this study and for, for a lot of studies. Since electronic medical records are already in an electronic format, what, what is NLP adding? And you describe the output of NLP as the conversion of relevant data to a structured format. What, what does structured mean in, in, in this context? So you're exactly right. Electronic medical records are already in electronic format. However, most of what we do as physicians is type into the electronic medical record. We are not using drop-down menus. We're not using click boxes. Um, and we're not entering number data in a structured format. And what I mean by structured format is we're not entering that data in a um, in a way that could be easily pulled into an Excel spreadsheet and analyzed on a graph. So um, when you when you use a drop down menu or you use a you put a number value in or you use a click box, that's easy to break that data down into either categories or into numbers. But most of what we do is type, and so 
understanding what what the meaning is behind those type words is uh, is important, and it's important um, for looking at um, patient care and for looking at outcomes. Um, so what the purpose of elect, uh, natural language processing is, is to take those words out and assign a meaning to them so that we can then use that information to understand what's being written into the electronic medical record better. So let, let's let's stop for a second and talk about what what meaning means. And it, I, I know I know that it, that that sounds like like a like a silly thing, but it's really what what the heart is of um, of of projects like this. the The problem with meaning is is that we as as humans can read um, different sets of words and get the same just from it. I can say that someone is avaricious or rapacious or thieving or or greedy and the, all of those things mean the the same thing but for a, a computer those are completely different words and what you're trying to do with this project is extract is abstract the the meaning from what has been typed in and can be typed in 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 inconsistent ways and and i i know from my own charts that i'm not consistent with the the way that I document things, I'm sufficiently consistent that I can look back at it and understand what I mean, or that I, I hope that my colleagues can too. Um, NLP, it, within the context of, of this project, is able to extract meaning from these diverse ways of documenting things. How does it do it, Marie? I mean, it sounds like, like magic. <laughs> um. It's not magic, um, but it, it is complicated because there are the you have to have a combination of someone who understands um, how these algorithms work and how you build um, how you derive meaning from words and from fragments of words and from misspellings of words with the clinical context like you're describing. Um, someone who has a mastery of the English language can use lots of different adjectives like you did to describe a concept. And we as physicians do the same thing. You know, we say infiltrate sometimes, we say opacity sometimes. And for some people, those mean very different things. For some people, they mean similar things. And so how do we assign those similarity or differences between the meanings of words? Um, and um, the, it's the combination of our great team of statisticians that we worked with and the clinical people on the project who could really um, help decipher those differences in meanings and um, see what see what differences are true differences versus um, physicians trying to represent the same thing just using different word choices to do that. Um, so saying it's an ulcer versus saying it's an infiltrate. Um, and also um, um, really looking into um, all of the ways that uh, things can go wrong in the electronic medical record when you're trying to type fast and really understanding where those failures happen. I know that the great repository of de-identified ophthalmological medical record data is in the IRIS registry. I also know Correct. that I had to spend a great deal of money uh, last year to change medical record systems to one that was uh, more natively compatible with IRIS. But I have to confess, I don't know what the IRIS registries, IRIS registry's intended purpose is. What, what, for what reason was the IRIS registry established? What, what is it supposed to do? 
Absolutely. Well, I think the primary goal really was to, um, well, as you know, the American Academy of Ophthalmology is really interested in delivering the best patient care and saving lives, right? And so part of doing that is really making our us as professionals able to um, be efficient in our practices and be keep our doors open for patients. So while you spent a lot of money um, create, getting the right EHR um, to be compatible with IRIS, the reason you probably did that is because the IRIS is then able to fulfill the clinical data registry reporting measures that you have to do um, for um, the MIPS program and for probably future programs that are going to be monitoring our, the quality of our care delivered to patients at a national level by the government. And so the, what what the Irish Registry has really shown is that we have to spend a lot of money on EHRs, but now we are saving money that by not losing out on getting our quality metrics reported because the Irish Registry can do that for us. By pulling the identified patient information, the Irish Registry then can represent that information to show your quality metric reporting for the government. Um, but beyond that, certainly the Academy has larger goals, not just only um, to help us as professionals, um, as our society, as a professional society, but also to really help save patients' lives and really improve their care. So they are uh, expanding that use because it's de-identified and patients are protected and safe behind the firewall of not knowing who these patients are and their privacy is for patient. We can now use real patient data to ask clinical questions. So registries like this in other countries and, um, and for other disease states in the U.S. have really warned us about risky devices, risky procedures, um, helped us see what patients don't do well um, with certain procedures and um, with certain medical um, treatments. Um, they've also identified sort of me larger medical errors. Um, and really, I think also a great opportunity is highlighting differences in care between regions, between providers, and saying like, wow, people treated in this way really did better and had better outcomes than people treated in this way, and looking at that data in aggregate. Um, to really improve patients' lives by informing us about this is the real thing that we're doing for patients. Who does better in the end? So these are practical, uh, real-world clinical outcomes that we can then say, you know, well, what are the best practices out there and how can we model those to raise the bar for what we're doing for all patients? Your paper is a sort of proof of concept of natural language processing for ophthalmological medical records. You chose microbial keratitis as the target pathology for this proof of concept. Why did you choose microbial keratitis? Um, well, I am a cornea specialist, um, and I'm very interested in improving outcomes for microbial keratitis. It is a leading cause of blindness worldwide. And really, unlike retinal diseases, we don't have any practical tools to risk stratify patients and to monitor them over time. Um, you know, for diabetic retinopathy, for macular degeneration, there's a lot of risk stratification as well as imaging tools to really quantify the disease and monitor, monitor the disease over time that we do not have. Um, um, for microbial keratitis. In addition, it's really not just one disease. It's um, a whole host of unique patients, unique bugs, and unique circumstances that coalesce to create this disease condition. And so it can have many, many clinical presentations. And we use that um, information um, by mainly, mainly what we do to risk stratify patients is we look um, at their, the patient's morphology and their clinical risk factors to then say, okay, this is a patient who has a severe disease. So my goal is to really use this tool to extract that data from the free text so we can 
um, look at patients over time, uh, and so we can risk stratify them to really see uh, who has who, how we can create better outcomes for patients. Maria, what was the design of this study? Yes. So what we did is we um, pulled a lot. We have access to, um, we we use the EPIC um, EHR system and we have access to all of our uh, records um, in the EPIC EHR. Um, So we um, pulled uh, patient records um, who had a diagnostic code of microbial keratitis to build the algorithm. And that was a large uh, data set. Within that large data set, we isolated three, uh, three data, three smaller subsets to really granularly look after we built our algorithm. So we built our algorithm based on our knowledge of statistics and our knowledge of clinical cornea disease. And then we um, looked at a training data set to see how well our algorithm performed, tweaked our algorithm in a couple unique ways to optimize its performance, and then closed off our um, redesign of our algorithm to see how well it performed in both a validation data set for internal University of Michigan data, as well as Henry Ford Health System data, which is a separate uh, an external validation set um, from another hospital system. You know, we looked we looked at our outcomes and see how our algorithm performed, not only to see where it was successful, but also where it failed. So we have since improved our algorithm some, but for the purposes of the published study, you know, we sort of closed off our um, algorithm at a certain point to then see its validity. This 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 sounds like a a, a simple question. It's it's deceptively simple. How did you mm-hmm. get the data from Epic? into whatever system it was that you were going to do the machine learning with? Sure. So all electronic um, uh, uh, electronic health records have a data backbone um, that basically we, you, you have someone, uh, we have someone on our team who's called a data architect who understands how to access the, all of the data fields that go into creating the electronic health record. So for every single display item that we see and we enter into on the electronic health record, there is a source location for that data that is held in the data repository source. And so we have a person on our team who is able to access those. We have a what's called a data dictionary that describes every single field um, in the entire electronic health record system, not only ophthalmology, but across the whole electronic health record. And we are able to pick and choose the relevant data fields that we'll have, for example, the cornea um, eye exam um, field um, for the right and left eye and the vision if we needed it, although we did not need it for this case, and the provider's name. And so we were able to isolate um, the diagnostic code as well as the data fields that we needed to first verify that these patients truly did have microbial keratitis, um, but then also be able to look at their, essentially their encounter note for the day um, on the day that we um, reviewed their chart. The, the, the encounter note for the, um, um, the, the fields that we wanted to review their chart to make sure that our gold standard was the progress note reviewed by a clinician and then compare that to um, this NLP algorithm who did not have the person, the algorithm of course only had access, access to the one data field that we gave it, which was the um, exam record data. 
Maria, I, I've I've a device in in my kitchen that that I I talk to, and in this day and age, it actually <laughs> talks back, and uh, and it tells me things uh, that I ask, and I know that this is a sort of natural language processing too. And I have to tell you, it's it's really quite good. Uh, I know that that you know that that there are massive companies that write software that do this sort of thing. Did, was the natural language processing that you did was that? commercial software or did you write your own natural language processing software? Um, yep, we, ha- we have a statistician on our team who, who used uh, tools that are publicly available um, to, uh, as an aid to build the natural language processing algorithm. But, um, you know, much like all statistical analysis, there are people now who, who do this and um, understand how you build these algorithms. But, you know, they, they do use uh, shortcuts. So, for example, um, um, to spell, there are software, publicly available free software programs out there to correct spelling. Um, and you can feed them a, the publicly available software where you can um, feed them al- um, uh, acronyms and it will tell you, will say this acronym means this or um, common abbreviations and acronyms, it will extend that abbreviation to the full word. Um, so it was a combination of novel um, you know, statistical writing, um, as well encoding, as as well as use of publicly available tools. Now, I understand that the IRIS registry is de-identified patient data, but of course, the the information that you were garnering from the the Epic Medical Records obviously has uh, the the identifier of of the patient on it, as long as it it resides on the the medical record system. Um, my my question is for for this sort of of study because this is all new stuff is there any consent that you require from the patients to analyze their data retrospectively yeah so so we use a method very similar to the iris registry to basically de-identify patients prior to using the data so we do we are under irb approval from u of m uh, university of michigan for this study um, and we made sure that we did not collect any what's called protected health information, so their names, their dates of birth, uh, medical record numbers, um, and such, so uh, zip code. So we couldn't, um, you know, it, it, uh, any patient who ultimately entered the database couldn't be identified. Um, and because, you know, we are pulling using this data architect, it's not like we're pulling, we're going into the patient's chart and then pulling, you know, cutting and pasting. We, we can pull the fields that don't contain that information. And so for all of our studies on these lines, you essentially have um, protected um, patient health information behind the firewall. Um, and then your data source is just, you know, patient one, patient two, patient three. So we don't have access to that information while we're trying to analyze it so they are protected. And what were your results? What 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 were your findings from this study? Yeah, so I mean uh, we we were able to publish this because uh, we did find that our algorithm could accurately extract these microbial keratitis markers and specifically we were looking at the measurements of uh, microbial keratitis size um, for the epithelial defect and the stromal infiltrate. So we, the algorithm effectively extracted those morphologic measurements from the electronic health record with good sensitivity and specificity. Um, and we, you know, we also, of course, had some very interesting findings. Um, as you described, uh, physicians use sometimes very unique word choices and um, interesting sentence structures, um, which is going to remain problematic for these algorithms to analyze. Um, these algorithms rely on 
segmenting um, sections of sentences and identifying keywords and then quantifying based on numbers around those keywords. So if the language structure is, um, is, is, is strange, it's hard for these algorithms to pull out that um, data. Um, we also really found that uh, clinicians sometimes document uh, measurements in strange places, um, and um, and it, it just implies that we need to consider if we want to imply the use of the, expand the use of the algorithm to things like um, it, uh, the assessment and plan section. A more practical thing would be to expand using it in the clinical drawings, um, because you are there are other software available that you can actually take word textual data out of drawing pictures. Um, the other thing that we did find is that, um, you know, um, certainly we, we need to come up with standards um, as cornea specialists for how we want to document what is important to document in every single note um, and what, what we, especially in shared um, patient care environments like a university se setting um, or really any patient setting where a patient's seen for a long time and another provider might be involved, what measurements and what data needs to be in every single record to ensure optimal patient care and safety. The opinions that um, non-computer science people have, non-data science people have about AI are, are, are really sort of odd. And the the level of um, veracity that people seem to apply to AI is much higher than what they apply to, to people. Um, so ha having said that, what was the sensitivity of your algorithm? And I say this keeping in mind that an algorithm doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't even have to be as good as, as, a, as a person is. Um, to to be enormously useful because ultimately the the goal of some of these systems maybe not yours uh, but maybe yours is not to completely replace the clinician but just to reduce the amount of labor that the clinician has to to perform. It's a great question, and I think it's an important. I mean, I I, I see this much from the more from the lens of a clinician. I, I really have similar concerns about the application of these algorithms. And I think that if we as um, eye care providers and ophthalmologists are not um, intimately involved with their development, they'll be misapplied um, or misunderstood and developed not in the context of Im improving patients' care. Um, so the sensitivity of our algorithm in external data sets was as low as 75% sensitive um, and then as high as 96% sensitive for the markers, the uh, clinical markers that we were looking at. So pretty good. Um, and it is, I, I think your question is, um, is very accurate in the sense that, you know, this is the kind of tool where when you pull, when you pull out the data, of course, you have to do it in clinical context. And I think that's where the fear gets alleviated for me for a lot of these AI software programs that are supposed to be decision aids, not independent of the clinician. This would only be something that a clinician would use. Um, and just like interpreting an EKG would interpret in the context of the care of the clinical patient. So if you're looking at a corneal ulcer over time and the algorithm extracts that on day zero, the measurement was five millimeters and day two, the measurement was three millimeters and day seven, the measurement was 
10 millimeters. Well, does that make sense given what was going on with the patient or was that an inaccurate data pull by the algorithm? So this is a tool that I see only being used by clinicians as a way to help them. Um, much like looking at visual fields over time is, much like looking at OCT thickness of the retina is over time. Um, and the, the goal would be so you really, there's two potential applications of this algorithm, um, both of which are really to help track the, the measurements over time um, and to measure disease severity at any given time. And the, the main goal is really to help medical decision-making. When we are able to visualize a disease trajectory and we're able to pull out quantified numbers and then put them on a graph, are we, would that help us um, in decision-making if we saw all morphology measurements of a ulcer over three weeks and say, wow, you know, this person was getting better for a while, but now I see the slope of their curve really isn't getting better. Maybe I should do something about it because you have all that data rather than each of those numbers being buried in individual progress notes, right? Um, or you can say, wow, you know, compared to the rest of my patients at day zero, this person has a much bigger ulcer and they also have these other risk factors. And so I'm worried about them um, compared to this is this is something different. Um, but especially for disease, looking at disease over time, that's pretty impractical to do currently with our electronic health records. So tools to help us visualize our, the patient's changes over time, I hope will help us provide them better care, change treatment sooner, perform surgeries if we need them, um, and really improve their lives. Um, the other application, of course, is for research applications. Um, if we can look at patients, you know, this is a big data kind of project. So if we can look at patients and algorithms and see differences between groups of patients, see how individuals fare differently on different treatments, hopefully we can, again, um, help the care globally of patients or gain new insights of you know, novel things that people haven't tried. Maybe there's a, a systemic drug that makes a big difference at um, helping ulcers, and we, do, we didn't even pull that together until the data was combined. So, you know, th those are the goals, I hope, of these algorithms. It's really to help clinicians take better care of their patients, not to supplant our care. Um, I, don't, I don't really think that's very possible, um, certainly with, not with these kind of tools. Now you mentioned what what uh, what the what the limitations of the, this this technology are in in 2019, um, uh, and you mentioned what some potential benefits some some uses clinically for the for the the the, the technology would be, and clearly the ability of whatever AI it is to predict something that's going to be useful clinically to me is dependent upon the, the quality of the, of the data. So my question is, how inconsistent can documentation be before the, the NLP sort of loses its, its, its use to me clinically? Yeah, no, and, and it's a, you know, it's a great question. It's hard to put a number on that, of course. Um, and I think, I think there is an opportunity here um, because, of course, like you said, the more inconsistent the documentation, the less useful these algorithms are going to be. Garbage in, garbage out. You know, if, if we're not documenting something clearly, how are we supposed to develop rules around how the documentation gets re represented to us? 
Um, we have learned a lot by testing this on external data sets, meaning, you know, uh, exam data from other providers because we learn what's unique to University of Michigan and Henry Ford Health System providers um, and how they type things and how they think about things. I, I think really it's a call. It, if the algorithm does worse and with more data, it's a call for us as cornea specialists to really standardize the way that we document this particular disease. Um, and I think that's a universal truth. Um, you know, for one of my um, work, one of my students who was a School of Public Health student um, made me a Cornea 101 document for all of my incoming students who were on my research team because there really wasn't a practical way to say like, this is what an infiltrate means. This is what depth means. And I think we as cornea specialists should take that on ourselves to really say, this is how we should document certain diseases. Um, so there's consistency across charts. And so when you get a patient who's transferred from another state and you're picking up their care, um, we usually can, you know, we're, we're smart. Um, we're, we're smarter than an algorithm. Um, we can understand pretty much what's going on. But if there's missing data, if there's things they didn't document that you're used to seeing in your exam, um, you can't make, you can't create what isn't there. And so um, we are certainly limited by, um, by, the lack of standardization in our terminology and the need for greater standardization, which is why things like the you know basic um, basic science clinical series um, content from the AAO exists. So we do refresh our memories on how we should be documenting things. Um, but you know there's kinks in the system. In addition to the things I mentioned, we have things like um, trainees who document in the clinical record, and then maybe they're exam notes are deleted or only partially deleted, but some of the content remains, or a scribe who we work with who doesn't really understand our clinical language and maybe mistypes what we are trying to say to them. Um, and we understand how they mistyped it, but maybe the next person wouldn't. And we also suffer from the universal problem with electronic uh, medical records, which is cutting and pasting, um, because things get carried forward that maybe shouldn't get carried forward. So there's there's lessons to be learned on the limitations of electronic uh, medical records. And I think the more variability we see, the more it's a call for us as clinicians to do better um, and make, make our communication stronger. On the other hand, if we were so completely regimented in the way that we did our notes, then we wouldn't need the natural language processing in the first place. We have to strike some some sort of balance. Maria, th this was an unbelievably interesting study. I think that this is just so cool, and it's not just because I'm geeky. Um, so wh <laughs> where, where, where do you see... NLP in ophthalmology going forward outside uh, of, I, I'm, I'm a cornea specialist too, so I'm a kindred spirit, but outside <laughs> of, of, of cornea, where do you see this going? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many domains that people will be interested in. I mean, I think that there's so much we can learn about surgery. Um, surgical notes have a wealth of typed data that were um, maybe can teach us things. Um, we've worked on domains about symptomatology, so patient symptoms. I think we are completely underutilizing what patients are telling us um, in many ways. I'm not sure all of that ends up in the electronic health record either, but I think that we don't pay enough attention to the history that we take for our patients, and I think we should be, and I think we should be trying to understand not only what patient symptoms they're having, but also how they're reporting their outcomes. I think that will be critical to move forward. Um, we've also um, been, uh, there's tools that have been built to look at medication information because we do in ophthalmology notes, 
we sure there's the orders that we put in, but then practically we change medications without changing the medications in our list of um, uh, our list of medications in the electronic health record. So we've also published on the limitations of that. But there's an NLP NLP tools available to extract medication names, medication dosings, and keep those current. Um, so I think there's I think it's just really only limited by our imaginations. Um, I think that. Um, you know, you mentioned before, I have no problem if NLP is obsolete, if we're doing a better job of communicating in our medical record. It's just a tool to help, help us take case, better care of patients. But I think there's tons of opportunities. Um, and I think there's now the, because of industry, there's the practical know-how how to do this well. Um, but we as clinicians will have to guide that application. So we really um, keep the patients always at the forefront and keep their care in mind. Maria, thank you so much for, for, for bringing this, this really, really cool topic and, and, you know, for, for doing this study uh, and, and, and mostly for your fantastic generosity with your, with your time. You spent a lot of time with me today. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I, I mean, thank you for interviewing me. I'm really happy to talk about this work and I, we really couldn't have done it. It was a huge study team of, um, people who understand this, um, both statistically and clinically, um, as well as, you know, um, the Journal Ophthalmology for publishing our work. We're really grateful for them to highlight this as a new way for us to, you know, um, answer clinical questions. Maria Woodward is Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Michigan Kellogg Eye Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Her paper, Natural Language Processing to Quantify Microbial Keratitis Measurements is in press in ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Woodward or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at Josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.